0: Jimmy Butler story of uh, in the bubble like two weeks ago I mean before the game or maybe three weeks ago before the games were really going and there was a uh, um, a phone call or several phone calls I guess of a disturbance in Butler's room and (laughs) they were like Oh, so you heard the story, right? Okay. He was we're working to, out too
1: aggressively? He was
0: working out too hard. Like they they thought they were going to interrupt a party with these wit ladies and they, they thought they were like, oh man, there's going to be this NBA star. And they come in and he's like dripping sweat. <laughs> he's like, what's the problem? He's just working out in his fucking hotel room by himself. <laughs> like, mm. At yeah. midnight, you know? The pandemic has obviously heightened a lot of things that people don't like to think about. But I mean, one of the things that occurs to me occasionally, like we're right now, we're having lots of debates about like whether we should reopen because of, you know, North Carolina and Notre Dame and Michigan State and all that sort of shit. And I I mean, one of my positions on this is we are so thinking only in terms of this semester. Like this is going to be a question for the for, for the foreseeable future, meaning like very realistically, the next two to three years the problems that we're facing right now. We we can't do what we've set out to do. I mean, no university can do this. But the problem's still gonna be there in a year, right? Like next fall, we're going to have the same problem. Like maybe the protocols will then work. But what I mean, if what happens is you're talking about two to three years, you're talking about a, you know, not an entire generation, but a significant chunk of folks that just aren't gonna have the traditional college experience. And they're gonna be okay. Right. I mean, and so uh, to me, the likelihood, if it, when we talk about this thing going on for a few years, which I think it's quite likely that it will, you know, I, I think that you're, you're going to inevitably be looking at, oh, well, maybe the model for growing up as, you know, middle class to upper middle class is not, you know, get a high school degree, go to college for four years, then enter the workforce, because they can't do that now. Um, and so, you know, and if we're, if we're talking several years where they just can't do it, then why bother continuing to try, right? Why, why not just create those alternative pathways that are things like, well, look, why don't I just go into a carpentry trade? And then again, what is it? Is it like, I also take night classes or I also take something else that, that exposes me to something. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be. Right. I, I listen to podcasts on the yeah.
2: right <laughs> Well, you make podcasts yeah. on Hegel is what you do. I mean that yeah. you have to you have to turn yourself into the creator rather than just the consumer somehow. Yeah. Right? I mean yeah. those are the those are the two options you have. You either consume media or create it. So I think everyone has to turn into some version of that unless you want to exclusively do a trade job. You know, I mean? it's like we're, we're creators of content in the university in the context of the university. Yeah. It's just that it's marketed it's already a part of that system. We don't have to like market ourselves to Right, or advertise ourselves, but it's content. We're giving people content. You know, it's no. it's not totally dissimilar from the, the
1: the podcasting industry or whatever.
0: We need to do a we need to do a TikTok video.
1: I, I think that we're. I mean, one thing I think we're trying to do with the podcast, though, is just blur the lines between consumption and creation just a little bit um, uh, for a few different reasons, like one. Yeah, I mean, there are different kinds of consumption, right? There are more and less passive modes of consumption. You sure. would imagine with a, a podcast called Thinking With that this would require a little bit more of an active style of consumption. That, um, But the other thing is, is that, yes, we're producing content, but none of us are Hegel experts. I mean, Nate, you're the closest to it, but I still don't think you would call yourself like a, yeah, you're not a philosopher of Hegel, right? Um So we're not delivering, you know, expert, expert knowledge on Hegel. What, you know, what we're doing is offering an invitation to think with us thinking through something. It's not like we don't have expertise we do have, you know, expertise and training and all of these other things, but that we're not giving it to someone else. And so I do think that what we're doing here is blurring the lines between You know the content creation in the same way that we blur the the pedagogical lines between you know the kind of um, free era you know banking model of 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 teaching. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, our version of expertise.
2: I think you said this a few episodes ago, Nathaniel. Is basically our ability or. Our uh, uh, yeah, ability to kind of suspend a level of certainty. So no, we're not experts on Hegel, but we are expert experts to an extent on how to discourse about stuff, like whether it's Hegel or Nietzsche or or whatever. So I mean. I wouldn't even call Zizek an expert on Hegel. I mean, what he is is an expert on how discourse works, and his invented version of Hegel would be blasphemous to a Hegelian, like a proper uh, traditional Hegelian. But it's – that that kind of expertise, you probably shouldn't even call it that, but I think that's both – more appropriate for our current context, um, for the sort of cultural temperature of the nation, and it might be more marketable, <laughs> you know what I mean so those aren 't uh, mutually exclusive
0: it's it's certainly very very singular as a as a sort of type of expertise, meaning it 's not something that you can simply outsource into a podcast or a textbook or it's it's something that requires the act, the engagement itself like you have to you know it's like it's it's zizek that you want to introduce some sort of thought process to it's not his books right so i, I mean it, it requires i mean and that's that's a you know a good marketing strategy in that regard is like no 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 what i have to sell here is not my ideas about hegel um what i have to sell here is my way of engaging something a sensibility and, yeah right
1: a style, if yeah. you will. Before we started this, you know, our we were initially thinking about do I mean, you were pitching doing a, a Heidegger reading group, and mm-hmm. you know, like the premise for that was just that, like. This is like people. All the people are quarantined or semi-quarantined. Oh. and can't see each other, and there's a whole lot of. Um, you imagine that there's a whole lot of people that are just kind of itching for some kind of intellectual engagement, and if if they were just itching for content, well, fuck Almighty! There's there's yeah. infinite content out there, right? And I I mean I share that that sense with you that at least like there is a certain appetite and the pandemic might make it a certain starvation for engaging with something a little bit more actively. And I think in a marketplace that is flooded with content creators and consumers of content, you know, in like our product could be on like, ironically, not particularly like a product that as a consumable podcast, I mean, as a consumable content, you know, obviously you hit play, but and you listen to it, um, and certainly within you know what we would call the attention economy, it would be taking up one's attention, but. I do. I mean, if we're going to do anything unique, I would like to, at every as much at every turn as possible, you know, complicate that, you know, delivery model, model of of content. Well,
2: the distinction. I mean, we're not delivering anything to each other. We're, we're just talking. I and mean, when we've kind of discussed this too, it's like that's what people really want is engaged discussion. I learn more from two or three guys, girls, just shooting the shit than I do from like a deliverable lecture. You know what I mean? Just because you learn, you're learning how people are engaging and how they're interfacing with each other. It's just, it's just, honestly, it's as simple as, can I pay attention to the thing? Like, like, uh, attention span. I'm much more inclined to pay attention to two or three people talk that are actually engaged than I am to one of those like standard theory or philosophy podcasts where they're kind of just giving the synopsis of Nietzsche. You know, I can't I literally can't physically listen to this. I can't make myself do it.
1: Yeah, I mean and this is where, you know, the the another binary gets kind of called into question between, you know, the delivery and the just talking too. Because I mean we are just talking and, you know, we do shoot the shit, but you know, we also have we also have – we bring, you know, particular orientations, and I would say each of us individually, but also, you know, our conversations have taken on a particular style as, as well. Um, and that's where I, I agree with John and just sort of within the um, – general conversation we've been having the the necessity of the you know in itself to become the for itself as well that we're we're not just doing the thing and we're not just creating the thing but we're talking about the creating the thing that we are doing which means that the thing that we are creating is you know changes from moment to moment as well Um, Mm -hmm. and that that's i think that's I I just that's it's a, a way of disrupting or, or, or um, complicating another you know common binary between the just talking about stuff and the um, enacting of a program.
2: Right, right. Yeah, I mean we do all have goals here, or at least you know we've talked about this too. Like John has his book, I have the the dissertation. You are a little more interested in just in just playing around with this con- with this. Uh, Kind of a well, but it's
0: also pop- his book, too, right? I mean, well, right. Like well, it, yeah, yeah. I'm not yeah. I'm not saying
2: yeah. you're goalless. I'm saying you're sort of more open. You weren't as like focused on one specific thing, at least at the inception of this thing. But what was it, what's interesting to me, going back to some of the initial podcasts, is how our sensibilities have like molded and kind of calcified at points and then opened up to each other. It's like this constant contraction and opening up where there has been a development but it's it's taken all these weird directions where like the you know the not necessarily clashes but like just the the dissonance and resonance of our various takes on Hegel has developed into something much stranger than it was at the beginning
1: and more interesting. I agree. Yeah. Initially, you know, I didn't have a a specific program other than just hanging out and talking. But the more we do these, the more our conversations and the more the reading of Hegel intersects my much more specific projects. I mean, I sent out the text about, you know, thinking about um, the intersections of writing and expressionism and Hegel. And, you know, obviously with the the Plato article I'm reading, writing at the moment, you know, like, movement as a, the center of that. And that's, Mm -hmm. this has been a very productive set of conversations for thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. I I
0: was, I was thinking about this question because I feel like um, uh, for me, my relationship to the Hegel that we're thinking through, I feel like there are times where I'm like really trying to be open to the sort of um, productive reading of Hegel and really follow it. And there are times where I'm pulling back from it and being like, well, hold on a second. It seems like there's an awful lot of unity here, right? And, and there's a way, and I don't, Nate, I, I don't think that you understand it this way at all. So, um, but there's a way in which it could sound like I'm just sort of berating you, you know? Like, like why don't you get with the fucking pro- program because, yeah. because of that sort of, that, that, that oscillation for me. And for me, it's not that, and I don't think that you think that it's that either. Um, like, you know, why don't you just embrace multiplicity fucker? You know, why don't you just, um, but instead it's, it is constantly me trying to figure out a way into this system. Not, not you specifically, Mm -hmm. although you're the occasion for it, Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, a way into this system, you know, that, and so each, each sort of each attack in that case is, is really much more of a just sort of a probing to see what can happen rather than Mm -hmm. like, oh, he tried attack one. It didn't work. Now he's going to try it again the week after that. And then again, the week after that, you know? And, and you don't, I mean, again, you don't respond defensively at all. So it's, I don't feel like you're getting that impression. Mm-hmm. But, cer- but certainly one could.
2: <laughs> you know? Sure. Sure. Another, another type of human might get defensive, John. I, am, I have a strong will. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, that's part of the problem. It's not a question of will standing up against it either because it's uh, not an attack. But that was, there was the text exchange that we had, like, what is it, last Thursday or something like that? It was a long text exchange that where, when you were getting drunk and Nathaniel and I were having the text, the, the text exchange where I was just like, God, if you read this, you know, it just sounds like we're berating Nate. <laughs> you know? and, and, and of course, I knew you weren't going to, you weren't going to read it that way. I wasn't worried mm-hmm. about that. And it wasn't because you're stalwart and committed to your position. It's just like, no, you right. kind of know us and you know that that's not what's going on. Um, right, right. But but it's interesting that, I mean, it certainly can have, so the that's that sense of like the distinction between, you know, aggression in the Nietzschean sense and resentment is like, you know, there, there isn't a simple way of making that distinction, you know, it, it, it so depends on the variables in play that mm-hmm. this can easily get heard as resentment.
1: Nate and, and Hegel have become a good enemy for you, not to defeat, but to sort of like stage productive encounters, like life-affirming encounters to see, all right, what happens when, you know... You know, this articulation of the thing meets up against that articulation of the thing, rather than trying to like win Nate over in some kind of way to get him to accept some kind of endpoint. Right? You would actually lose that dynamism if if he just simply adopted it. But it would also be a it also wouldn't be valuable if both you and Nate didn't sort of get transformed in the. In if the, we simply maintained process. it
0: and we're sort yeah. of trying different rhetor- traditional rhetorical ways of. Persuading one another—that would be equally—that that would be a stalemate of a different mm-hmm. you kind. Know, so, in that case, like winning and losing are both bad versions of playing. Right. You know?
2: Either of those resolutions would just be boring. Event, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, if if I came over to the Deleuze side and was just like, "All right, well, I'm on board with this now, and fuck Hegel, like, or whatever," you know, or if, if I somehow persuaded you guys to just take the Zizek line, like, then right. where would the conversation go? It would be kind of just like. Just affirming each other, like, ceaselessly.
1: I do think that it would probably go through a stage like that Uh, I mean obviously I'm I'm not taking it like this at all but obviously at a certain point I developed a much more Nietzschean Delusian sensibility Mm -hmm. and like that was something that I struggled with as well like how am I different than John because you know clearly in the the field for professionalization you know I can't just be mini John and John's Mm -hmm. like you you can because you're not going to be and it's going to be like the differences are going to come out whether or not you try to make them or not but the other thing that I found is that you know um, well we don't have conversations about you know Deleuze v. Hegel or, or Zizek, we do have a lot of conversations that um, sort of bring out like much more internal resonances that yes. that you know it's just like that those dynamics um, have just sort of shifted locales. Now it took a little bit of time yeah. for those locales to develop enough for them to be really productive, um, but you know the. I don't think that you need externally speaking I don't think you need the um, you know the one thinker against the other thinker in order, to pr- in order to produce that kind of dynamism that it can happen within you know right. particular constellation of figures as well because it's never right. just Deleuze or Needs like Deleuze plus Nietzsche plus Spinoza plus well you know, and look I mean that, no
0: no one of those thinkers is simply identical to themselves I mean that's yeah. the the obvious lesson of Zizek's reading of Hegel is there's just not right, one right Hegel, right so, so he- exactly. Hegel is not one thing a sentence is not one thing. And so therefore that that's where to me it's it's less about like you maintaining your resolve or your position and you know or, or not and or or me attack, you know, attacking or not. And it really is, it does become like the, the sort of circuits within that that are generative, productive, interesting, insightful, you know, that that matter and that that you keep cause because I actually, I mean, I agree with Nathaniel, like I remember the process a little bit of the process for him. I mean, I'm not in his head, but like, you know, there was a, a pretty extreme skepticism with which you began like, you know, what, maybe a decade ago, you know, this sort of the trajectory, the philosophical itinerary that you're that you're pursuing now. And I don't see like our thinking as identical at all. And and you push back on me. It's just in different ways than Nate puts, pushes back on me. You know, and, and so it's not because we share something and the pushback is that it's, it's really not that it's just like, well, we're different people and, and you know, right. so it's, I yeah. mean, that's where, you know, I mean, I remember Nathaniel and I had this conversation and we, we sort of had it on text, but I remember, you know, when I came out of graduate school and people were talking about like, you know, I'm working my diss into the book at that point and people are talking about the sort of need to distinguish oneself from one's advisor or mentor or whatever and i never felt that like i just never felt the desire to distinguish myself from from Neilan, and i was you know it was always like i always felt like it was a relay that i relied on like i trusted in and had value in uh but i never felt like i wanted to be like this is not that and and in mm-hmm. fact it's it's been in the last few years where i've uh, um D- discovered things where I feel like they're you know in reading some of his more recent stuff where I feel like there really there is a divergence and it makes me sad like that's actually my response is when and not because I think he's done wrong or I've done wrong but it's just it, it's much more of like oh there's a distance here when there wasn't a distance before and mm-hmm. and so like I don't feel the need to distinguish myself but the distinction is happening and it's like oh that's too bad like that's I miss a time when I just was like well i'm not sure if i said that to him or he said that to me you know what i mean like i right. i liked that now when i was in it and especially initially in young that indistinction in your brain is this my thought is this my mentor's thought is this my friend's thought that was really troubling and anxiety producing um, but i lived there long enough that it just stopped being anxiety producing it was like it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter to me you know uh, one thing that i feel pretty confident about is that i don't i don't have my own thoughts Right, like I, I'm just, I'm just okay with that in ways right.
2: that, and that's a multiplicity, you know, if you want to, yeah
0: yeah, 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 take that, I mean,
2: take that line, yeah, right. I mean, it's, it, and that, you you get that from Hegel as well, like the the collective, like it's not something you have to strictly speaking get nervous about or have anxiety about, like Harold Bloom's anxiety, anxiety of, of influence, influence right, right. You don't have to have that orientation. You can embrace that, whatever you want to call it, multiplicity or collective in Hegelian terms. So I think that that is at least, like I think there's an equivalence between identifying cool shit and creating cool shit, right? Like those are not, like when you're reading cool stuff and you're like, oh, that's a cool passage. That's the same thing for me almost as creating that thing myself. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not the exact same movement clearly, but when I find a passage in Zizek where I'm like, that's profound or whatever, and I take that clip it out comment on it, That's not, I'm not being derivative there, you know, or at least I don't feel that way,
1: you know. You're reciting it into a different network, right? Right. 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 It takes on, it gets reanimated. I was going to say, I never felt that, I I never felt that, um, that anxiety on a personal level, um, because it was just, it it was fun to be there because I was actually thinking through stuff, Mm um, no, the anxiety was only ever external. Like, in order to publish, you know, you have yeah. to. And th- we were talking about this last time. Like, this is why you have so many, you know, um, rhetorical theorist concept of X, you know, trademark. Mm-hmm. Um, that, like well, it obviously has uh, a professional purchase, but it just mm-hmm. comes with so much baggage as well. And, and that's trying to navigate to things, you know, at a professional level is... It's, yeah. it's not. Maybe it's not. It's not anxiety producing. It's just a bit more frustrating.
2: <laughs> it's it's uh. annoying. Yeah, it's definitely annoying. Just the the fact that the we talked. Yeah, we talked about the pressures of the the market and the publishing industry and how it creates broad, basically. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, I feel that as well. I've already. Attempted to coin my own concept, you know, and it's basically just a version of Alf Heibung or or the dialectic It's just like well, here's another term that I found a funny spin on it It's like it's it's productive, but the impulse to make that concept might have come from the wrong place (laughs) You know, it's like it's trying to uh, balance that I mean it's like, you know, you don't want your point card to be neurotic. You know, if Damian Lillard had my level of uh, self consciousness, I don't think he would be dropping sixty a night, right? He'd be he'd be lost he, every time he'd He's miss a shot man. E- exactly. Every time he'd miss a shot, he'd be thinking about that and then he'd miss the next shot. That's the like with a with an effect. With an effective leader, it's at a certain register in certain contexts, you need someone who's precisely not self-conscious, who's willing to lead you into battle and just make decisions, rather than my deranged form of leadership, where I'm just questioning my capacity to lead the but entire. So,
0: <laughs> this, is, this hits on a point, is like that, but that's that self-consciousness as a. Uh, as a vicious circle, right? That's not self-consciousness as a progressive, right? Like, and and that I mean the point to which you return as your kind of paradigm is the inability to master contingency, right? And so, mm-hmm. contingency is the case, and that that's that's the the big lesson, right? The big takeaway is that contingency can never be mastered, and and. For me, that, I guess it's, I'm getting to this idea that there's a, there's a next point there that matters too, which is that you can't even master the non-mastery of contingency. And, and I feel like that's where you, as a voice for Zizek or, or Zizek, seem to be stuck, right? Which is just the sort of pointing out of the inability to mastery contingency is a stable point. It seems to be a basis from which one can look at everything and say, see, they can't master contingency. See, they can't master contingency. See, they can't master contingency, which is, and you can even say it by yourself. Ah, see, I can't master contingency either. I mean, that's fine. So you can be self-critical and, and you know, no one knows. But that seems to be, to be a mastery, a kind of mastery of the non-mastery of contingency. Right. Like that. It's like, well, I, I got this point and, and that's where to me it becomes the, the smartest guy in the room argument. Right. Like so that here's what I can do. I can show why everybody else's thing sort of falls apart. and Even my thing. Falls, like I can show all of those things. But that's a kind of limit. And it, it's kind of it's kind of like what you were saying with the self-conscious, uh, the Damien Lillard self-consciousness thing is that it's not it's it can't go anywhere it can only show everybody else that they can't go anywhere.
2: Now yeah, I mean, there is a point where it does become self-defeating. It's just that, well, at least the better parts of Žižek like lend themselves to thinking that as a, a diagnostic point rather than like we should just revel in this non-mastery. Like it's like if if you can diagnose a level of non-mastery at the base at the basis of just existence right if if the telos if we're going to acknowledge the telos and i i get that you guys are like trying to complicate that but if there is this constant tension between success and failure or between like assimilating your environment and giving yourself up to it right there is then a base level attempt at like a libidinal level to whatever you want to call it, master contingency to be successful in your environment, successful in your own sure. subjects, orientation towards the world. So if that is a telos or a goal for subjectivity at its sort of structural level, um, then I, I at least think it's productive discursively um, to c- continually come back to that failure. Now, we can we can get into like the dynamics of that and why failure is not an Uh, An appealing um, concept For you guys Especially in the Deleuzian terminology But for me It's It's both It's both You're right It is sort of arrogant Like especially with Zizek It does kind of Lend itself to Well Everybody's wrong, but I'm actually right because I recognize that, right. that we're all right. wrong. It does lend itself to that at points, and I, and I definitely grant that. But what it should do, theoretically, is lead to a level of modesty in the face of decision-making, right? Because if you, if you suspend that certainty, then, I don't know, it, it doesn't have to be paralyzing. It can just lead to more thinking about the decision, Or, you know, in sports, it does not work. I like I really think there is a different like Damian Lillard cannot think like Zizek. That would not fucking work. Um, But in policy writing, policy making and in theory, I mean, it it can it can be effective.
0: I don't but I don't know, because there you're distinguishing a decision from the self-conscious reflection on the decision. and It seems to me that self-consciousness is just another decision. Right. Like, in other words, so to me, all the decisions that players make, instantaneously in the course of the game, those are exactly the same as the decisions that a writer makes or a talker makes or anything else. So that, you know, like right now we're doing that. And so self-consciousness to me, that's why it's important that self-conscious not be seen as a meta move and instead be seen as just another move, right? So it's a, it's a response it's a particular kind of response. I mean, it's it's a distinctive kind of response. When I say, well, what do I mean by saying it's a distinctive kind? That's a particular move that I'm making, just like going behind your back is a particular move. It's it's not right, right. the same as others, but it's still a move in the game. It's just another move in the game. You're right. And, no, it's not and, a meta move,
2: but there is a duration difference. Right, that's and I fine. think that that's key. That. Yeah. that part is key. That's what I mean with the sports thing. It's yeah. too quick. It's too quick to have the kind of like extended. Reflection is not the word here, but like just, you know, uh, think you can't think in sports. I mean, you have to suspend that kind of conscious interaction at at some level. Right. So, like, even though we're going back and forth and you could make the metaphor that we're like, you know, I'm doing a behind the back pass to Nathaniel and he's he's given John an alley-oop for the for the Deleuzian point. It's still at a different register. I mean, we're operating... We're, we're talking quickly enough and we're thinking with each other, thinking with. Let's plug the podcast name there real quick. But, um,
0: <laughs> I love that. We just had a marketing uh, moment yeah, with just, no let's, one to market. <laughs> let's plug with no audience.
2: Who's right. our sponsors? <laughs> right. But, but I, I, I do think even just the duration uh, makes a huge difference um, yeah. in those kinds of decisions, right?
0: But, but you could say, for instance, that I'm thinking of a um, – one of the Pelicans games I watched in the in the bubble a couple of weeks ago when the defense was clearly laying off of a LeVar ball, right? Like, please go shoot, right? And and this and so each time down the court, I mean, what they were effectively doing was making the same argument over and over again. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, okay, we're coming mm-hmm. back down the court again. Now is, now what we're going to do is we're going to make this argument, which is that LaVar, LaVar ball can't beat us. And until he Not does, Lamar. we're just going to go under the screen, you know? So, so that was, and now it involves all kinds of decision makings in the mo- like ha- how, you know, going under the pick, you know, wh- whatever, whatever it might be sagging off, whatever it might be. But still it's like, it was part of an argument, And uh, it thought in those terms, right? I mean, I don't think it really is an argument and I'm not trying to make everything into an argument, but the, the, to me, they really are the same. And, and I get that duration thing, but for instance, a, a defensive strategy or an offensive strategy has duration as well, which is to say that the first time you go to AD in the post, it doesn't pan out. He turns the ball over, but you still keep going to AD in the post until they start double teaming him until they have a rebuttal. In this terminology, right? In turn, they have a rebuttal to it, and then you attempt something else. So, so the duration, I think, is is more than you're giving credit for. Like, even even in the momentary, fast decision making of sports, there are longer enduring arguments than others. You know, and and so and certainly moments where you say, well, we're going to set that argument aside. For, you know and try to start another kind of argument but we're going to come back to this in the fourth quarter when we need a bucket or we need a stop or whatever else you know right
2: right Lonzo Ball not Lamar Lamar's Lonzo. The, the dad Lavar's the dad yeah that 's the fear of failure is what causes yeah, people to yeah. fare, causes people to fail in sports the, the another you know provisional difference between basketball and theory or writing or talking theory is that Theoret- Theoretically, we are not uh, trying to win, um, right. either when we're right. riding, Right, that's not the deal. That's, that's not right. the goal. So if that's the goal, that creates a whole set of conditions,
0: everything.
2: psychologically, I, I physically, physically. Right. That that um, you know, Damian Lillard can only be in Nietzschean terms. What is it like the noble man? Right, he can't be the overman cuz that would be that would be a level of incoherence, you know what I mean? Yeah.
0: But that's what I want that's where I want to kick you cuz I feel like I've been saying this to you for at least over a year. I remember meeting with you about a seminar paper like a year and a half ago. And I remember say I don't know if I said this, but I certainly thought this. I'm sure I said it another time it's like you're going to have to stop being content with being the smartest guy in the room. You know, did, did I say did I say that? I think yeah, somewhere?
2: yeah. Yeah, you said okay. that at some point. Because yeah. that,
0: that to me is that, that to me is the thing that's going to frustrate you is like, cause mm. first of all, you just are. So let's just accept that. But who cares? It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily buy you anything or get you anything. And that's to me when we think of the, the pointing out of the failure, uh, to totalize or the failure to unify and the necessity of contingency, that to me, Ends up being the stopping point. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that things can't come out of that. Of course, of course they can, but it ends up being a stopping point for you can, you can say that's true of everything and you can even say it's true of yourself. But, but that fact means you've hypostasized that position into a position, you know? And, and that's what I mean by that, a symptom of the smartest guy. And there's like, I have the Zizek knowledge. Or whether Zizek does it or you do, do it, it doesn't matter to me, you know.
2: Well, to so. be clear, I'm, I I would like to shit on everybody, including Barad. Well, know, right? So it's know, it's not simply the the I appropriators. Know. It's I would <laughs> like to also say Barad is bad. Bad. No, I know. I
0: know. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I know. It brings it, brings us to a point where we can actually return, go more directly to the text because we were like 22 or 20, something, something like that. And I was, I was rereading it this morning. And uh, this is, this is a question that I just want to raise because it's, it's not specific to Hegel at all. And Hegel actually draws on it, draws it from Aristotle. And, but it's a motif that you've heard a million times. We've all heard a million times, which is um, the question of the superiority of that, which is internal to that, which is external. Right. Like, I don't get it. I just I, I just don't get it. The, the idea that if it comes from within, that's better than it coming from without mm. um, and or more truthful or more honest or, or something like that. And here we're talking now about what the unmoved mover. Um, the on in 22. Right. The unmoved, which is also self moving. A power to move is pure negativity is just the unrest that is the self unfolded becoming etc etc and and this to me is just something I want to throw out to you guys because it's a value that is fundamental it seems like in philosophy um, I don't know that I can really think of people who've questioned it much um, and until we get to the sort of post- structuralist right the the thinkers of the outside you know um, but I'm, I'm just sort of curious if you guys have some thoughts then on why the presumed privileging of interior, uh, that which comes from the interior being superior to that which is accidental and uh, external, Well, not, I won't say accidental adds another factor into it, but being external. Maybe that's the answer.
1: (laughs) I've got a quick take on it is that I mean, one, there's it it couples with a um, another value binary between the active and the passive that the thing that moves by itself is active in the generation. Yes. And it's more authentic because it determines its own movement. Whereas the thing that is moved from the outside, it's it's not moving itself, so it is not, it doesn't have the capacity to not move or move this way. So it's not like it, the self generation is what makes it authentic or inauthentic. It's just passively being moved, right? Mm-hmm. Which I would also say then hooks very quickly and nicely, and with a, a certain you know local logo, logophilocentrism as well is that the activity oh, yeah. of the man against the passivity of of the woman as as well, well right?
2: Mm-hmm. Or the passivity of matter, the the external material world, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think like. It, it sort of relates to the idea of concrete universality in a way as well, where it's that tension between, again, it's coming back to the mastering contingency thing where this was actually something I, I had in response to your chapter, John, uh, on audience and stuff where you're, you're, you're talking about the tension between specificity and generality. And I was like, well, concrete universality is a, is a good, like, I don't know, foil for thinking through that. And it, it, Zizek's take on that, uh, at a certain register is that, you know, context is the rule, right? Context, mm-hmm. uh, breaks everything apart. Uh, and so that it's not that it's equivalent to the universal. It's that the universal, the dimension of the universal, um, or is basically the, the movement of self-positing, which means like, right, the, there's all of these presuppositions, uh, in our, in your, Interfacing with the world that are uninterrogated. So it's the inability. I, I this seems it sounds reductive the way I'm phrasing it right now, but the inability to master contingency. That's the universal dimension of subjectivity for someone like Žižek. So right. the extern- there is no simple externality obviously for for Hegel or for Žižek's take yeah. because everything is in a process of internalization. Right? There's no world out there that's separate from me. There's no contingency out in the world that is right. absolutely separable from the subject. Contingency is the subject's workings on the world. Right, so it's like it's that folding process of internalization that is not it. You know, you can't rest in that. There, again, it's the uh, there's no comfort in that. But, the, um, but the,
0: there's a difference between saying so. What you just said, the contingency is the subject's working on the world, as opposed to contingency is the world's working on the subject. Right, like right, and, and that, that well, to me yeah. is a. I mean, it's the same. I, I, I get that it's <laughs> yeah. the same thing, and um and and I get that he's not simply wanting to keep the outside outside, right? I mean, certainly not in Hegel. Um, But nevertheless, I just think there's a big difference between starting from provisional interiority and then proceeding to incorporation and exteriority and the, the subject working on the world being contingency and starting from exteriority and... I mean, frankly, the fold, right? Like exterior, the the fold is just like, hey, two exterior forces meet and one of them, you know, folds and now you have interiority, but interiority is only an effect of exteriority. I mean, so it's not that there's no interiority, it's just that it's second rather than first. And and here it it feels like it's first um, in terms of like, We're starting with the self mover. Now, of course, you know, in that sense, consciousness or whatever, you know, uh, that that sort of interiority in, in immediacy is the sort of first point that you have to kind of move past, right? Get past to 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 enter into the, because uh, here in the next few pages, it really does talk. I mean, it, it addresses Nate's, uh, Nathaniel's question of the, like, are there aborted roads? And it's like, well, yeah, there are actually. It seems like there are some people who are just further along, some individuals that are just further along in this process than other individuals for Hegel. And so you have this sort of, you know, I wrote in the margin twice. And then I saw that I'd written it years ago, like on the next page of ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, right? Like that the individual's growth is also the story of spirits, you know, uh, sort of not transcendent, but for provisional terms, trans transcendent growth. And I mean, you have the same kind of story and the story really is one of starting from interior individuality and, and the in itself, to the for itself that becomes in itself for its, you know, becomes the, and and so in many ways you would say the starting point is the problem here, or or, or is the source of is the thing that I have uh, take issue with. Well,
2: the starting point is the difference and I, I understand I understand sort of the appeal of uh, multiplicity or force as the, as the starting point because if you start with externality then there is no failure. Right? right. There can't be failure How if it's just it? forces moving there's, on and and no forces. Su-
0: and there's no success either. Right? Like exactly. just as important.
2: Yeah. And and with Hegel if you start with the with the internal with, or with interiority, failure has to be primary. Right basically yeah. to make that system function the way he does uh, dialectically failure has to be the primary right. you know collapse of subjectivity yeah. so I again this comes back to like why Why would I prefer that one? I, it's like it, it, it. maybe it's because um, I, at a basic level like I still subscribe to some version of humanism you know what I mean like where yeah. like I, I just right. feel like yeah. 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 this is why I react a little bit Bit, or not just a little bit but to the post humanist some of the variations of that because I'm like I just don't see how we get out of of some of these dynamics right the the I see I see the need to because it's led to right, all of these yeah, issues yeah, right. but it's like I just personally I'm like I Especially today with the shit just collapsing all around us and, you know, all the, like the, the pressures of capitalism just kind of calcifying and turning into all this complete bullshit in terms of how we interact online and, and blah, blah, blah. I I just struggle to see a way out, you yeah. know, and it's like maybe it's sort of a dystopian line at a certain yeah. level for but, me that I lean into.
0: into. I mean, that's interesting because for me, my response to that exact same quandary is... Is overcome the human, right? Like Nietzsche, Nietzsche gives you the answer. In other words, like the humans is is the problem, right? There's no, I mean, insofar as if you remain within the parameters of the problem of you as you've diagnosed it, there isn't an answer. And that that's where I feel like Nietzsche says, don't stay within those parameters. Like this is a species that is the the species is the problem.
1: You know, I mean, and the, the uniqueness of the human might be that it's posited its own interiority, which is, which leads to a notion of success and failure that can produce a certain kind of the the neurosis of never being able to get out, right? Um, but yeah, if you begin with the fold, which would mean that there's no such thing as exterior forces either, right? right. Exteriority right. loses its meaning That's every right. bit as much as internality, but. Um, Which which also means that not everything is just external. I mean, like, the the wrinkle that I always like to add to your explanation of the two forces meet and create the fold is, you know, force meets, force meets, it bends, it creates, you know, a little cul-de-sac or fold or whatever, and that creates its own... Not properly internal dynamics, but it, cre- it creates a subset of dynamics that then necessarily expresses itself. Oh, that, of that yes, is not re- is, in other words, that little the fold is not reducible to the forces that yeah, make right. it up. That's that it creates sure, a I dynamic do. into itself, yes. and that's what's interesting about subjectivity. Because you know, if, if you take yes. subjectivity as you know particular. Um, Intersection of folds like that. Well, that creates a whole lot of complexity for some interesting offshoots and, I, I and mean, intensivity and as, well. as well. I,
0: I totally agree. And, and for me, I mean, this is, I mean, this had nothing to do with philosophy. I remember ninth grade AP bio class, and I, I know I've told you this story before, Nathaniel, of like. You know, doctor, I can't remember what his name was, but like we're doing the dissection of a pig fetus or whatever in ninth grade AP Bio, and he keeps talking about the lungs and the lungs as interior components of the body, and I was like, that doesn't make any sense at all. That, and, and. and I wasn't trying. I mean, I think I probably was kind of trying to be a jackass, but I was actually genuinely confused. I was like, the lungs wouldn't work if they were inside of the body, right? They they just they 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 wouldn't. I mean, it wouldn't work, right? I mean, I'm just saying it. I mean, I understand where they are physically. It's not like I forgot where lungs are located, but that can't be called the inside of the body, otherwise it wouldn't work. And so that that's for me. Way prior to philosophy, the notion of a pr- primordial interiority at the level of breathing doesn't make sense right like the, the these mammalian organisms don't work if they have an inside you know so so they're you know or they don't work if they have a a, a closed off inside. And so therefore, I just never thought that an inside or an interiority was primordial, preliminary or or anything. It was just like that can't be the case. And so to me, when I, you know, reading this sort of Aristotelian heritage and it just popped into my mind as I was reading through it this morning of like there just seems like a very, very long history of the, uh, unthought privileging of interiority, um, in ways that I just, I, I, like I said, I just actually don't get, it just doesn't make sense. So I'm totally willing to say, to think in terms of the fold produces what we would call interiority that has attributes of itself that are irreducible to the forces that produce. I mean, I'm, I'm way okay with that. That's just, there's an emergent phenomenon to uh, emergent components and attributes to to uh you know forces like meeting one another. Um so so yeah, that's cool, but it's not a it's not a starting point. Um it's a I mean, or rather, it's a starting point only if you say, all right, bracket the ways in which these things came into being, bracket all of the exteriority. Now we're just gonna look at this organism and we're gonna and this organism happens to be called the human, and we're gonna ask, how does its mind work? How does its lungs work? How do you know and, and again? Totally cool with that type of questioning. I don't have a beef with that type of questioning, but it is never going to be a question of taking that interiority and exposing it to an outside because it was never an interiority, you know?
1: Well, it's worth taking the neurosis that that realization can produce. I mean, I remember, you know, even younger than ninth grade, you know, like I mean in elementary school and kind of coming to the realization that my like, the you know, the, the concrete realization, not just a theoretical realization, that my body has pores on it, that yeah, there's, yeah. like, microbes in my gut, that, right. you know, that there is no protecting me from the alienness of the outside. And that was, like, gross and terrifying. And there's was like, well, if then what am I if not always already, you know, contaminated? And that was... You know, that that was like, what the fuck? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not me. Um, and that was – it took me a while to – I mean, granted, I was in elementary school. But it took me a while to kind of become okay with. And I swear, like, it also had, um, like – it also affected the kinds of things that I would eat. So like, I'm not going to eat things that, um, you know, that have other critters growing, like, like the idea of bacterial cultures or stuff like that. Um, which is obviously really, not good for you to not eat that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But, but then like, as I became increasingly okay with it, that, you know, I'm not simply myself that also, you know, and we were talking about Hume a few times ago too, that that just also lent to a sort of cultivation or expansion of, you know, my, um, you know, Comfort with you know non-self identity and engagement with with difference with, with with otherness as well, but the neurosis and the fear were for were real. But, the, a bit. but the,
0: the human so that's where that's how I understand Nietzsche's you know f- f- one of the famous phrases of like consciousness hasn't caught up to the body. Right? Yeah, like yeah, the body understands interiority's irrelevance uh, yeah, right. or relative yeah. irrelevance. Consciousness, on the other hand, doesn't. Right. Like, so the terror that you experience is because your mind hasn't caught up to your body and or, or, you know, human consciousness is just not it is it's on a, a lower evolutionary scale than the body itself. The body itself is way more advanced in terms of relationality, exteriority than than consciousness is human consciousness.
1: Well, and I yeah. see myself repeating these things, reinscribing these things in Lockland too. Like, you know things about, like, we don't want you to cut yourself because we want to right. keep the blood on the inside, right? Yeah. <laughs> or we need to keep the germs on the outside. But there are, there's the big germ. But the big germ is actually made up of very small germs, and not all germs are bad for you. So I want you to eat the things with the good germs, but we want to keep most things out of your mouth. <laughs> like, so I mean, I for him, you know, like I mean, I can just see a sort of sense and an identity with the inside outside getting produced. That you know, we, he must think we're trying to torture him too because we are also just trying to destabilize. Like this is really important inside outside inside outside. Also, really important to not so. <laughs> Yeah. I mean,
2: there's an array of of responses you can have to that, like, kind of primordial affectability or, or responsibility. I think those are like terms that Davis, that Diane yeah. D- Davis uses. Yeah. And for Hegel, ter- that terror that you were talking about, Nathaniel, is kind of primary, right? So it's, yeah. the, it's the recovery or reaction to an initial terror at that responsiveness to the world that leads to other orientations. Now, the one you're talking about where you kind of achieve a level of, I don't know, resolve with that uh dynamic that's a pretty sophisticated you know sensibility i think at a at a basic level most people need to lie to themselves right like so that that's Nietzsche's like you know certain lies are necessary um you're, you're not only the consciousness has to lie to yourself, but at a certain level, you're, you're your body has to your yeah. body has to lie to itself. Because if you were to experience the inner workings of your digestive tract at every moment, right, that would lead to a level of, of paralysis. Um, so the interiority in Hegel, at least the way that I'm reading it via Zizek, is that. It's a ne- it's a necessary lie or an illusion or a phantasm in like Derrida's terms. Right. It's a it's a it's produced by the mechanism of the self or of subjectivity rather than being the Aristotelian or even Descartes presupposed unified self. It's yeah. a projection that is nonetheless necessary or has purchase.
1: Right, right? Identity producing projection.
0: But, that, but that's where I'd be like, well, maybe necessary for human consciousness. Like, so in other words, if what we want to say is Zizek's Hegel is a really good diagnosis of human consciousness, I would grant that and say, so what? You know, like, I mean,
1: I, I really... It's a different I, kind of consciousness.
0: Yeah, right. Like, that's all the more reason for, like, pushing well, to something else.
2: Well, I mean, I agree, but it, but I'm also like, well, what... Have we done that, or like, why hasn't anybody done that yet? Well, lots <laughs> why of people, are we not?
0: Well, I think lots of people are
2: trying to do it and have tried to do it. I mean, everybody's you know. trying. That's the thing. It's like we can't do it yet. That's my that's my issue. It's like Look at this we should guy to try- rush
1: the product to market. Evolution <laughs> happens slowly, man. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, it'll happen. I mean, hey, we'll be extinct soon. Who gives yeah. a fuck? Yes. But yeah, it, it will change. This is the other thing. It will change. We will not direct that change.
0: Well, seems everybody well like that's where i would like yes it will change yes we don't direct in some sort of like generalissimo standing above mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that there aren't things that you can do that facilitate you know like that that produce now they may not be the intended effects they may not be anything else but that's where to me that that is if i feel like there is an you know ethical imperative to the thinking of multiplicity that's where it comes from is like it is a kind of commitment to experimentation with the body and, and, and with thinking and its possibilities. It's like, that's where I was like, make something fucking cool. Right. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And look, always balancing that with a kind of pragmatism I think is, you know, that's what I do. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm a fucking professor at a university, however idiosyncratic I might sound like I pay my mortgage and do, you know, like, so there's a pragmatism uh, as well um, that is, at least for me, kind of creates a baseline of repetition that allows for other kinds of experimentation.
2: No, I mean, I I think at a certain level, you have to do both, right? I mean, like, it's, I feel like, I, I, yeah, I, I feel like we're coming back to Nietzsche's truth and lies here quite a bit in this, these last like 30, 20 minutes, like where... Again, it's like the, the necessary, there's a necessary pragmatism at the subjective level that you have yeah. to kind of embody. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also clearly endorsing an experimentalism too, especially in, in other works, yeah. in the figure of the overman and the eternal return. So yeah. it's, it's, maybe it's not a balance between the two, but there's certainly a tension there that's productive in Nietzsche and in the sensibility that Nathaniel's talking about.
1: The only thing that I would push and perhaps even push the thinking and in, in that truth and lies essay is you know, the idea that you know we can't direct change or that um, you know we're not going to be the architects of whatever change like things will change but we're not going to have anything to do with that change and I will yeah, totally agree like we're not going to be architects of it we're not going to stand above it and direct it here or there we're not even going to be able to have the capacity to imagine a future and then tell whether or not we succeeded or failed at it But I would say that I would go so radically far the other direction and say that we can't help but uh, uh, shape that future. Like at even the most infinitesimal levels, we, we are shaping that thing. And that's. You know, I come back to the mandate of experiments, like given the conditions that I am already always already, you know, inventing with the future. Like how does the one comport oneself to that as as, a, as an experimental model? All right. I mean, given mm-hmm. like it's not even like, you know, the, the maxim can't be invent. Right. Is because that's right. just going to be the given. Well how how does one comport oneself to the invention or to the inventive process?
0: I love that when Debbie and I did this thing together back in grad school, the posthuman thing, this is before posthumanism was even a term, so it just popped up in a couple of places. But I love we had a last line, and I can't remember which of us wrote it, but I, I remember I had it on this little part, but the very last line was like, and so the message of posthumanism concludes with a single imperative, experiment because you already are. And I love the second part of that, you know, because it's also not a verb, right? Like because you already are, like experiment, like do this because you already are this, right? And I, I love the conjunction of the two, which fits with what you're saying, which is, you know, like what what you are is an experiment. And so me telling you to do it is both really important and also totally superfluous. <laughs> you know. Right, right.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's redundant and right. sort of necessary as right. an imperative. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I keep thinking about, like, just in the context of these last few months, like, my own ch- sort of transformation. Like, I, I've lost a bunch of weight. I've gotten in better shape. I've uh, experimented with, like, my yeah. sleep schedule, with certain relationships. Yeah. And the, the standard humanist orientation towards that would be that I... I'm the architect of those changes right that i made choices and change happened because of those choices and at a certain level that's true but when you take the hegelian or even i yeah. think the deleuzian line i think they're complementary on this on this front is that you're a product of changes as much as you are a facilitator of them. So the reason I lost weight was not because I decided like, like in my, in my heart of hearts, I was like, I'm going to get in better shape. No, I moved home. I stopped eating the foods that I liked because I'm not buying them because my parents are buying food. They're not right. It's just all these Mm external, well, external environmental factors that have led to these changes. So I, I am, in, like, It's not that I'm not the architect. Right. I mean, I am the, a component but that's the tricky of it. Thing. I mean,
0: what you're, you're oscillating yeah. between the active, passive, inside, outside question. And that's where like, so one of the chat, the titles of one of the little vignette chapters is, uh, for me on the concept of context is that we need to begin thinking context as internal to the text, not as some surrounding external, you know, I mean, that's to me one of the biggest, and, and also it's impossible to do. Right, it's impossible given our, uh, you know, conceptual coordinates. It's impossible to think context internal to the term. Like try it, because what will happen is the distinction between them will fall apart, and everything. I mean, it, it it renders them this kind of indistinct mass, which is not what I'm interested in either. I just want to kind of complicate the implicit way in which context means surrounding you know, external and surrounding to whether it's a statement or an action or a person or whatever it is, context is always the outside surrounding. And so we are thinking of ways of injecting that into the inside such that we start thinking of like literally the statement, you know, I love you is literally not the same statement from circumstance to circumstance. It's it's not the same statement in different contexts. It's a different statement because the contexts are internal. But, you know, that's a hard, that's, my that's a favorite hard way sell. of
1: teaching close reading. And that's the way I teach close reading. And like, I mean, since doing the ways of reading stuff is, you know, to, to look at the context that the text creates for itself. Right. It's creating relationships that I mean, you know, I usually talk about it in terms of the sense rather than the context of the thing. But I, I always hates stuff that tries to put statements in some kind of broader historical context or tries to extract propositions as if they stand alone on themselves and I mean this is you know you can this is also one I was thinking hermeneutics the most carefully vis-a-vis Gottimer and and Heidegger, but it was always, my favorite thing to do in teaching close reading is to sort of like look to the internally produced context and the way that, that, um, you know, sentences bear on each other or that senses of words bear on each other, that you're not going to understand, you know, this sentence until you've read all the way through and then you come back to it. Again, and you're right that that like there's never a rigorous process because every time you're reading through it, different sentences, different aspects of it are getting amplified, and some other ones are following through the cracks, which are creating different kinds of relationships, which are creating different contexts for these things to resonate. But it's far more for me. It's just, it's far more inclined to produce. Um, experimental thinking to think context internal to the, the text than it is to and also, look you it outside you know, that fixes one it. Of,
0: one of the things worth keeping in mind, and this is, you know, the next move on that, like I did to Nate, I'll do it there, like you know, the the notion of the, con, the internally produced context is an externally produced context that you're I- enforcing, right? Like, so not external, internal becomes a problem there, but it's, you know, increasingly I just feel like Arguments about statements are always arguments about context, and in the academy, at least, you know, we at least recognize that distinction, that arguments about statements are, are in fact, arguments about which context is the appropriate context or whatever, whatever. Um, but, but nevertheless, I, I, I still feel as if um, there is a, a kind of uh, cheap liberalism that comes out of that, which is to say, well, that's just a different context. Or that statement was in a different context than this. And so context becomes this way of kind of equalizing the differences uh, between things that we all just say, oh, okay, well, that's a different context. This is a different context. And that's the thing that I kind of want to push back against is is that notion of (laughs) A, that there is a context that would be a proper context. Context. Well, first of all, that the argument over texts are actually not over text. They're always over context. And then, you know, the next step that is that contexts are never any more given than texts, right? So what, you know, if you accept that, and this, that's just the argument of Derrida and signature event context, right? Like it is, I don't think I'm saying anything that he doesn't say very explicitly there, which is there, you know, the concept of context can, what is it conceals beneath it? Um, ambiguities of a very determinate philosophical nature, which for him is humanism. You know, that the the very concept of context and how it functions is entirely a humanist concept. And it's, it's one that, at least from what I can tell, is just absolutely unquestioned in academia. That the concept of context is something that Everybody uses and nobody says, Well, what the fuck do we mean by context? They might ask, what the fuck do we mean by this context, right? Like, but they don't ask, what the fuck do we mean by the operation of assigning a context and differentiating it from, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, because I don't know, what would fucking historical work be if you didn't presume the value of a notion of context? Like,
2: right yeah that movement is unconsidered in most even sophisticated like in rhetorical theory like uh, a a standard notion of rhetorical context is that basic notion of externality and you outline that in that chapter Um, I do think you know in Deleuze clearly you get the more rigorous uh, complex notion of context that you articulated before that Um, and I think to a certain extent you get that in Hegel you certainly get it in Zizek's Hegel this is still something I, I will concede yeah. this is sort of a, uh, a point for <laughs> you guys
0: uh, I thought it wasn't about winning uh, fucker uh,
2: <laughs> no no I'll give you guys one assist here um I don't know if it's always in Hegel. Like, context is certainly primary and it's certainly considered, but he still has God in there. Hegel was still a good Lutheran. Um, so that is something I Zizek doesn't exactly waver on, but he sort of just bulldozes past. The, the critique has to be internal, and this is something that uh, he points to right on this next passage that we are kind of resting on here, <laughs>
1: either on uh,
2: paragraph... <laughs> Yeah, Dude, I, so we're, uh, yeah. we're actually oh. at
0: two hours, so let's not turn to the text just so we can Yeah, let's not read. Sorry.
2: This is our... So I was just gonna point to something real quick, but he basically says like the the critique has to be internal that's to right. unfold what he calls the fundamental proposition, which is the speculative movement that's of right. the dialectic, yeah. right? So it's like you can't come from an outside perspective, and that's the reason why this person's wrong. No, they're wrong internally, and it's they're not simply wrong; they're also correct because they're symptomatic of this movement. So, so it's but, that, yeah. a, but,
0: but that's an interesting that, uh, that's an interesting moment related to our previous conversation about the inside outside question, because uh and I'm looking for that same thing where he says like it's not an external uh critique, it's an internal critique that matters. The external being superfluous and secondary or something to that effect. And and there so I mean I both have the response that I, you know, we talked through before about exteriority seeing being seen as secondary derivative. At the same time, I get what he's saying. Which is to say, uh, and agree with in that sense of like, you know, it's the easiest thing in the world to say. Well, the problem with Hegel so far is he hasn't talked about gender, um, or he hasn't talked about race, or he hasn't talked. You know what I mean? And that would be what I would call an external critique, like bringing categories that are that are not the categories with which he is working to, to play and finding them missing or inadequately treated here. And, and that is, so that's a particular, I mean, part of the issue here is we have so many different senses of critique, right? That, that we use this word, but there is a kind of critique that is bringing something that the thing is not talking about and then finding the thing wanting for not having the, those elements in them. That's one where I very much share with Hegel, like, those are external and secondary. I want the interior imminent critique ones. And I can say that. And at the same time, say, I don't believe in the interior exterior division, right? That, that for, for me, I would say, if you start from a premise of exteriority, the questions then are, it's not like everything then becomes the same. And that sort of critique of race is the same as reason playing itself out. You just, If you start from all exteriority, then you have to think, how is the exteriority that appears as interiority different from an exteriority that appears as exteriority? You see what I'm saying? Like that. So you can hang on to, at least to me, I would want to hang on to, because I'm with him on that, is don't bring in something from outside and say it's lacking in the text, right? Which is the most common and easiest move that anyone can make. Um, so that and that's just a, it's not that it's wrong. It's just banal and and super easy. And that imminent critique is much, much harder to do. Play the thing out. And as he says, and I, we got to find that passage, at least for next time, play the thing out to the point where it's not even worth critiquing anymore. I mean, that's effectively what he says, right? Is if you run the logic of the thing out, it won't warrant a critique after that. And that's I mean how is that not what we've been saying about the sort of generat the logic of the generosity is you know you go after Barad with a kind of imminence that uh, that at the end you're like well wow she got me to this incredibly interesting way of thinking that doesn't make me even want to critique her anymore so
2: right yeah the imminence the the imminent critique i mean it it can be disorienting, but it can also be entirely productive. And I think that, I mean, that's Derrida's whole approach, I think, like almost exclusively where there's, I mean, he is the best example of, I think, a contemporary, uh, you know exerciser of that kind of internal critique yeah, where agree. he embodies the position and the, and the conceptual material of the person he's dealing with so thoroughly to the point of like you've been kind of endorsing to that level right. of indistinction right. productive Although
1: indistinction I, I think that Deleuze's yeah. work, early work did that a lot too but he, he just mm-hmm. he lacks the, the beginning part where you sort of presume a you know figure acts as something distinct and then it gets indistinct as you move mm-hmm. forward like like his, I'm thinking of his Kant book. It's like, oh, no, here's just what happens when you take, when you run, you know, the, um, you know, Kant out. And anyone who's, you mm-hmm. know, dogmatically Kantian will be like, that's just not Kant.
0: Because we're at our two hours, so to give the last word to Hegel, if the, if the refutation is thorough, it is derived and developed from the principle itself, not accomplished by counter assertions and random thoughts from the outside. So there is that element externality means accident uh non necessary whatever. So so um the refutation would therefore properly consist in the further development of the principle and in thus in, in thus in remedying the defectiveness. Right? So in other words by following out pursuing out the the logic of the principle you undo the need of critiquing the principle.
1: But if I heard that right, that this is more of the um, external critique because if you keep on running it out, it will eventually be able to include the fill in the blank. No,
0: I think this is, if the refutation is thorough, it is derived and developed from the principle itself, not accomplished by counter-assertions, random thoughts from the outside. The refutation would, therefore, properly consist in the further development of the principle and in thus remedying the defectiveness if it did not mistakenly pay attention solely to its negative action without awareness of its progress and result of their positive side too. That would be the critique of what Nate's doing with Ferrari, right? Like like the problem, Nate, is that you're just paying attention solely to the negative action without awareness of its progress and result on the positive side. I mean, well, I'm, I'm not. not gaelian, I'm not
2: doing that. But okay. I mean, it's a. It's where you you articulate the defects not simply as defects, but as necessary. Right. So it's not simply. You're not saying Barad's wrong. You're saying that. Well, I, the the language of right and wrong doesn't seem to be useful here. Right. But you're saying right. that she yeah. the mistakes that Barad makes are necessary mistakes. Uh, they're not simply to be discarded in my thinking, in hers, in anyone's. It's that. Now, she's maybe not completely self-conscious of those movements. I think you could still make that. Oh,
0: so here but, – but you're right. So here's the difference. You're right. OK. So here's where I'm wrong because I'm saying uh, – if he says the refutation would therefore properly consist in, f- in the further development of the principle and in thus remedying the defectiveness if it doesn't just pay attention to the negative action. But you're – what I'm thinking of that as attributing that to the principle and you're thinking that as like, well, you can do that as somebody else outside of the principle who's like, looks at the principle, refutes it by developing it, and then offers a kind of counterbalance. Whereas I'm saying the counterbalance would be the same as the prin- right. you know, from the same source of right. the principle. So I, I see how you get the – there you can have more antagonism in there and less generosity than I'm wanting yes, to do. Yes. So. Gen, gener, generosity, by the way, isn't really a great word for it because it's also pretty violent. It's like I'm going to take her thing and make it Right, right. Than, yeah. Than, than it is. So <laughs> that generosity. Mm-hmm. Is
2: it's a little mean. It's a little cold. <laughs> There's some coldness <laughs> to that generosity.